Well, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 26, a wonderful part of Scripture, 1 Samuel 26. David is still running from Saul. He's been running from Saul for a long time, hasn't he? In 1 Samuel 24, we saw that God gave Saul into David's hand in En Gedi. It was a, uh, a desert area with water and waterfall that's still present. You can go to En Gedi. David was hiding in a cave. If you remember, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, and David could have killed him. But he did not lift his hand. He refused to shed blood or to do violence against the Lord's anointed. He said he would wait on God's promise, wait on God's favor. So we see David protecting Saul. Well, then in chapter 25, we see almost the opposite. We talked about this last week. We see in this account, God protecting David from shedding innocent blood or from shedding blood, the blood of Nabal. God protects David by the hand of a godly and wise woman named Abigail. So David, we can see, is learning to trust God and we can see that David is learning not to, not to be impulsive. Uh, this was an impulsive act. He wanted to go kill, uh, destroy everyone in Nabal's house. And I think it's a blessing that we get to see David's sanctification because it's much like ours. On the one hand, we see God changing us and making us more godly in ways that we didn't think possible at one time in our lives. And right when that thing happens, we get attacked from a different angle. And we see maybe some of the same temptations resulting in some of the same sins. And yet God is gracious to bring his sanctification to us and to uphold us. As Paul said, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So God is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who's doing the work. He's doing the work in David, certainly at this time. So this is 1 Samuel 26. A delightful narrative of David, again, sparing the life of Saul. Please remain seated, but hear God's holy word. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness... David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment, while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul, to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, 
Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, May he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that although everything on this earth is transient, your word will stand forever. We pray that the permanence of your word and the incomprehensibility of all that you are would rest upon us, that we would understand a little bit more about your character this night, and it would encourage our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the spear, the spear seems to be the, the predominant theme 
the working of the spear, the possession of the spear, um, and even the tip of the spear. I don't know why that struck me, but the tip of that spear could well have destroyed Saul, and yet the tip of the spear ended up being a testimony for David. He did not use it. Let's go through the scripture um, verse by verse, verses by verses, and just look at some of the lessons that we can learn from this particular chapter. Verses 1 through 5, we see again that the Ziphites betray David to Saul. Again, this is the second time these people, the people of Ziph, have said, Hey Saul, come get this man David. Come kill him. You see, David's enemies seem to have been persistent in their hatred of him. So Saul comes with 3,000 chosen men. In other words, he's got his crack troops. He's got the best men he can find because he's got to go and kill David. Like every army that you'll read about, he travels via a road. I think that's really insightful. It lends credibility to the narrative. Saul camps on a hill beside the road. Armies camp by roads all the time. They still do. The supply, um, the supply of the army is easily done when you're by a road. Armies always have moved by roads. And if you remember, this is just a fascinating piece of providence. The Roman Empire, about a thousand years later, was enabled by their road system. The roads did more than we think, well, it just enabled their trade, and that's how it became so wealthy. Actually, the primary reason they built roads was so they could move their armies quickly to any part of the empire and quell any revolts or any rebellions. So the Roman roads were made to last. They were, they were made to, to keep the people under control. They were made so that the armies could move. They had side benefits as well. One was trade. Trade was much easier. Roads were important. But in God's providence, Jesus Christ came during the Roman rule. And every part of the known world was touched by a Roman road. So when the persecution started in Jerusalem, and these saints of the first church scattered all over the world, they followed the Roman roads everywhere they could lead. Indeed, Paul walked on these roads as well. So the roads that were meant to bring about the success of the Roman Empire, actually brought about the success of Christ's kingdom. So I'm focused on the road. Uh, Saul camps by the road. That's really all that this text is telling us. But David stays in the surrounding wilderness. He's, a, he's in hiding. He's not going to be near roads. One of the first things they tell us, if you're in a survival situation behind enemy lines, stay away from roads Stay away from houses. Use your radio sparingly. So the closer you are to a road, the closer you are to capture. David knows this. We're not learning anything new. In this day and age, he's staying in the wilderness. He's got spies and scouts that learn that Saul is really there. How many people are there? Where exactly they're camped? Where exactly they are? These people come back with good intelligence on the enemy, and David uses it. He goes to where the army is encamped. And what does he find? He finds Saul in the very middle and the whole army surrounding him all around. 
If you're Saul, as fearful as Saul is, that makes sense, probably makes sense anyway. He surrounded himself by his army. His army is literally in the Hebrew encamped around him. Turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We actually are very familiar with this psalm. It's a psalm of David. I think there were three or four sermons on this particular psalm. If you remember verse 7, this is David when he changed his behavior before Elimelech, Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. God saved David's life when he went to Abimelech the Philistine. He starts out by saying, Bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Seems that Saul has misplaced his trust. This is the exact same Hebrew word that David uses when he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around, same two Hebrew words, those who fear him. So David chooses to be surrounded by God, and Saul chooses to be surrounded by his army. Is it just a play on words? I don't think so. I think Saul really does trust his army. He trusts man and the protection that man can bring, whereas David really does, as the text seems to indicate. David trusts God. He trusts God to encamp around him. And the angel of the Lord, of course, usually refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Jesus said in the New Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. Saul trusted in the wrong thing. And David trusted in the Lord. David trusted in Jesus to encamp around him when he was in danger, when he felt threatened. So this is an encouragement for us. When we feel threatened, when we feel scared, when we feel in danger, I think it's our, our natural tendency to want to go fix things, to want to go do things. And only after all of our iterations of effort are over, then we stop and we say, oh, Lord, it's time to pray. So what should really happen is the opposite. We begin by taking every need to the Lord. We begin by starting with God and showing our trust in the Lord. Asking the Lord to encamp around us. And then moving forward from there in confidence. But Saul is encamped in the very middle of his army. It doesn't do him any good. We see in verses 6 through 12, David asks two men, Ahimelech and Abishai, who will go up with me? Or who will go down with me to the, Saul, the army of Saul? Abishai is the brother of Joab, as was Asahel. These three brothers were the sons of David's sister. So they're his nephews. You can imagine if you had an older, accomplished uncle 
how you looked up to that man. I did anyway. I looked up at my uncles because they were about five or ten years older than me, and they just all seemed so amazing. They drove cars all by themselves, and they had real jobs, and they had a wallet with money in it. And when I was a kid, I just thought, wow, I want to be like my uncle. So these men are obviously older, but David is their uncle. And these, these sons or these brothers of Joab, including Joab, are all extremely loyal to David. They're not always in their right minds, and they don't always do the right thing, but they're loyal to David. So these are David's three nephews. Abishai later becomes the leader of the three mighty men, if you remember. He wasn't part of the three, but he was the leader of the three. And the only way to become someone in that position is to be extremely brave. So we're already seeing the bravery of Abishai. Joab also extremely brave, fearless in battle. Joab was the leader of David's army later. Who's this other guy? Ahimelech. Melech means king. Ahi is brother of. So my brother is king is what his name means. But he's a Hittite. We don't know exactly who he is. But it's interesting that there were Hittites, the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan, who weren't wiped out like the Israelites were supposed to. Now these people are actually serving God, it seems. Uriah, you remember the husband of Bathsheba, was also a Hittite. So God is bringing these, these foreign people into David's army, and they work mightily for him. There were even Philistines in David's army and other uh, peoples from around that area. So the Hittites, the Hittites are mentioned again when we read of Uriah. But we'll talk about that some other time. So he asked these two men, who will go down with me to the camp? Who will go down with me? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. So do you realize what they're doing? The whole army is there, 3,000 men. And these two guys, David being one of them, he doesn't send anyone to do this this time. He goes himself. He sneaks in to the enemy camp. This is like some Tom Clancy movie. This is, this is crazy stuff. This is Navy SEAL stuff. The courage and the leadership and... Is it foolhardy? Well, I, at first glance, you might think it is until you see what the Lord has done to put the, how did he get to Saul? Well, God had put everyone to sleep. That's what we read in verse 12. That's how they made it to Saul, undetected, sleeping next to the water and to the spear. God had put everyone to sleep. Why? Because that was his son, David. That was God's chosen man. He was the king's man. And he trusted him. You see the confidence that you have when you recognize who you are. I'm not saying this just applies across the board. You want to do something foolhardy, so go for it. No. But you don't have to be scared to live life courageously for our king. God will take care of you. So Abishai and David reach the sleeping Saul. And there he is at their feet. He's right there, and he's got a spear stuck into the, into the sand. And there's a jar of water. And of course, Abishai says, we're going to kill him. Here he is. 
It won't take two strikes. It's just one strike and I'll, I'll finish the business. God has done this for you. And David refuses to strike the Lord's anointed. He refuses to do this. Rather, in verse 10, it's apparent that he is trusting in God to lift him up. He says, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, Yahweh will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. Yahweh forbid that I would put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. You see, he's using the the name of God over and over and over again to show that that's his trust. That's his trust. It's not in the death of Saul. He doesn't trust that his enemies will be killed. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts God's plan. God will take care of this thing in his own timing, in his own way. That's what David is saying. So when is it right for you to act out on your own? To move forward on your own. Well, I would certainly say always pray about every decision. If it's a morally wrong decision, you just don't do it. And that's obvious for David here. It's wrong to kill someone while they're sleeping. That's murder. No, I'm not going to do that. And if you can wait and trust, if you have time to pray longer and trust, then wait and trust and pray. If you need to make a decision, pray and make your decision. Move out. This is really kind of the tip of the spear of Christian living. How do you live during the day? What do you do? So that by the tip of the spear, it's like the first point of the, of the weapon that makes contact with the enemy. So the SEALs, every combat unit says they're the tip of the spear. The SEALs say it. F-15 units say it. Um, Army rangers say it. Everyone's the tip of the spear. Everyone wants to think they're the first to encounter the enemy. Well, when we live our lives, the tip of the spear is just trusting God's word. John Bunyan said that every sin or every bit of anxiety, whether individually, every failure of the church corporately, comes from a lack of honoring the word of God and trusting God's word to be true. So normal everyday life is a a life of trusting in the Lord. It's praying without ceasing. It's seeing God's providential hand in every detail of your life so that when bad things happen, you can say, okay, that's painful. Lord, help me. Lord, be with me. Be gracious and compassionate. I trust you. When good things happen, saying, Lord, thank you so much. You've answered this prayer. You've done something wonderfully good for me. Thank you for this wonderful blessing. You see, every bit of your life shows up as being God doing something for your good and for His own glory. He's camped around His own people. What a blessing this is to remember. Again, in David's case, it makes him courageous. It makes him morally courageous. Moral courage is something that is found few and far between. If you are in the workplace, you know this is true. People are afraid to say anything, do anything. I might get a demerit. I might get fired. I might. Where's the moral courage in God's people? Or people who work for you. They just say and do whatever you tell them without thinking. Like little automatons. Because they're afraid of getting fired or getting uh, their pay cut or something. Where's the moral courage for God's people? Well, it comes because you realize that you are encamping 
in the middle of Jesus Christ. He's all around you and he'll never leave you. So David not only shows physical courage, but he shows moral courage in the face of Abishai, in the face of his whole army, not to take this matter into his own hands. Great and wonderful example for us. In verses 13 to 16, we see that David is also just wise. He's learned what it means to be wise. He gets a great distance between him and Saul because he doesn't trust the guy. The guy has tried to kill him so many times. He calls out to Abner in verse 16, and he said, You're out to kill me, but if anyone deserves death, it's you, Abner. You didn't protect your king. Here's the evidence. I've got this spear and I've got this jug of water. It was right by your master's head. You did not do your duty. You did not do your job. In verses 17 through 20, David, it's one of David's four speeches in this chapter. He basically says, if I deserve punishment, if God has sent you to punish me, then so be it. I'll submit to the Lord's work. And notice how David addresses the king. So this is a man trying to kill him. This is a king who's despicable in his evil, killing all of the priests of Nob, the whole town. He's a wicked antichrist. And David is the ultimate of respect. This is the Lord's anointed. He calls himself over and over again, your servant, In the Hebrew, this could also mean your slave. I'm your slave. My Lord, the King. He calls him his father. Saul calls him his son. There's just this, this attitude of respect as he refers to King Saul. So this informs my own thinking, and it's helpful for the church to remember. David knew something about who was in charge. And he knew that God had placed Saul in charge of Israel. And God would remove Saul when he was good and ready. And because God had established that person in charge, he was going to honor the king. All of our leadership has been established by God. The most despicable congressman or politician you can think of, put there by God. We don't like them. We don't like their policies. But we're respectful. We're honoring their position because they've been placed in it by God himself. He then says to Saul, if God is not punishing me, then listen to me and not to the men who are telling you to chase me because I'm like a flea. I'm not going to hurt you. Twice now I could have killed you. I'm not going to hurt you. Verse 19 is very special as well. He says, Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, accept my offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord or the inheritance of the Lord. So he's referring to the covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And every family received an inheritance from God. They received land. They received a gift from God. 
And the worst thing that you could do was to sell your land or be off of your land. It was a given by God to your family. And it was passed down from generation to generation. The same piece of dirt. The same place. You could look back 20 generations and see the same family. Why? Because this was given to us by Yahweh when we came into the promised land. And David is saying, you've driven me out from my inheritance. This is the worst thing that I could imagine. Let's look also at Psalm 16. Psalm chapter 16. This illustrates the heart of David to be in the presence of God and in his covenant blessing. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take the names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, again, those words mean something to us. They mean something to every human. The idea that God has given us a, a, a wonderful inheritance, a good life, in so much as we live and move and have our being and have a knowledge of the Holy Spirit, the lo- by the Holy Spirit of the love of Christ. But we also see something special that David is referring to, and that's that inheritance that we were referring to. You see, that, that inheritance uh, was a reflection of God's covenant love for his own people. So we also have that inheritance, only our inheritance is in heaven. That's where our inheritance is. And it's a reflection of God's covenant love for his people. And the worst thing that David could imagine would be to be cast out of his inheritance, away from his property that God had given him, away from his heritage, to be told you cannot be here any longer because he would be outside of the covenant promise of God. And God is calling each one of us to look forward to the fulfillment of our own covenant promises. To long for it more than anything else, as David seems to. Long to be in covenant with Almighty God. In the presence of God. Well, here in verses 21 through 25, we see Saul speaking truth. He says, I've sinned. This is true. He says, I made a great mistake. This is true. He said, God will give you success. This is true. And he says, come, come back to me. And David says, no. No, not going to come back to you. And it's, a, and it's an abrupt reply to the king. You remember he's been so, so, um, he's been so honoring and respectful to King Saul up to this point. Uh, But his reply to the king in this particular sentence is very abrupt in the Hebrew. It's just a few words. Send someone to get it. Send a man to get it. You want your spear, your water jug? I'm not coming. You send someone to get it. Why? Because although he trusts God, he's not stupid. And he's not going to walk into this bear trap that's called Saul. 
It reminded me of, you remember the old SALT treaty when the nukes were all over Russia and Reagan, I think it was called the SALT treaty, and Reagan made this treaty with Russia. It was groundbreaking. We're going to destroy all these nuclear warheads. We're going to make the world a safer, safer place. We'll only save enough for us to destroy each other, basically. But how are we going to verify that all this thing is? And the Russians said, well, you just have to trust us. And you remember Reagan's reply, I trust you, but we're going to verify. Trust but verify. That's kind of David's attitude here. I trust you, I trust the Lord, but I'm going to not trust you that much to walk back into your, into your grip. I think this is also, this attitude of David's is also helpful for us to think about people who just are out to hurt us. People who have, uh, you may have known people who just constantly bring hurt into your life. And you, you try to forgive them and you try to love them and bring back relationship. And all you get in return is just hurt and wounds and pokes and jabs. What do you do? So well, we need to remember not to confuse forgiveness for the person with a perfectly restored relationship. Because to have a perfectly restored relationship, it takes both sides. Not just you saying, I forgive you and I love you. If you walk into this arms wide open like David did not do, you might get hurt again. So you can still forgive the person, but still acknowledge that this person is harmful to you and be a little bit guarded if you have this pattern of, of hurt in your life. I speak to this because I know that uh, in our family there are people that have been like that and we struggled on how to relate to these folks in our lives and David is just a, a wonderful blessing to see how he reacted to Saul in this particular case. He was respectful, he loved him, but he was going to guard himself a bit as well. And he had forgiven him, it seems. David said that he was going to trust. He closes the chapter by saying he's trusting in the Lord. He held Saul's life precious, and so he wants his life to be precious to the Lord and Saul agrees that this would happen and that David would be blessed. So when we think of this particular narrative and how it affects our own lives, I want you to be encouraged. First of all, Jesus encamps around you. You don't need to trust men. You don't need to trust politicians. You don't need to trust doctors. Yes, you use them and they're here for our benefit they're brought into our lives by God, but our trust is in God, in God alone. And with God as your trust, you can be courageous, you can be physically courageous, you can be morally courageous, you can do things for God that most men would be afraid to do. Most women would be afraid to do. You can trust the Lord as David did. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the mercy that you show us, we thank you for the life of David, your chosen instruments. We know that we are not like David. We don't have the same role as David. He was your chosen king, a type of Jesus Christ. We're just your people, your adopted children. And yet we know that the way you treat David, you also treat others. So we can trust you. We can serve you. We can love you. We pray that you would help us and inspire us to love you well. 
We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.